You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to uh, tonight. tonight's uh, class on Judges, our special American election uh, uh, issue tonight that uh, we'll be uh, making our way through. And uh, yeah, this will be fun. This, this is kind of how... Uh, Reality mirrors what God's word teaches. I think we might have a bit of that tonight. But let me begin with uh, prayer, and then we will jump right in. Let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you are the uh, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, that all reality... um, is under your control. And so we pray tonight as we read your word, as we reflect on your word, that you would speak into our hearts. Help us to focus in and, and to, um, to attend to needful things, the things that matter, uh, the first things. And we do pray that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear and soften hard hearts so that we can receive from you tonight. And then grant us courage to respond to whatever you say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, how's everyone doing? Yeah. How are my cyber friends doing? Everybody doing good? Good. All right. Well, we're carrying on in the book of Judges. Last week, we uh, looked at the unmaking of a leader, Gideon. Uh, Gideon was a leader uh, who struggled at first. We saw that last week. He was not um, overly confident initially. Uh, We saw Gideon as um, he interacted more and more with Yahweh. We see him growing in confidence. He's given a calling, a mission. He discovers his gifts. He relies on God's gifts at first, does amazing things. And then he starts to rely more upon his gifts than maybe upon the giver of the good gifts, which is God. And towards the end, he begins to struggle, even though by outward appearances, he was a very successful leader. But inwardly, he was, there was something wrong. And uh, we see by the end, him pursuing a personal vendetta. Um, and choosing to get revenge rather than walking with the Lord. And so his story last week is replete with lessons for anyone involved in leadership. Um, I've uh, suggested to a number of people that after I did Gideon, I was like, man, we got to, this has got to be a leadership talk. Um, Cause I think it's, it's such a warning for anyone who has any influence over other people. So you could be parents, could be grandparents, could be whatever, or a, a mentor. Um, But nevertheless, through all this, God worked through Gideon. And the result was that the land had rest for 40 years. And then we arrive at chapter 9. And by the time we get to chapter 9, we're we're faced with an all-too-familiar refrain. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this time the evil is explained in greater detail. Look, if you have your Bibles, turn, to your, turn your Bibles uh, to Judges chapter 8, just at the end. 
verse 33, says this. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of, of uh, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So we read that, you know, no sooner had uh, Gideon died, the, the people kind of go back to their old ways. And I would say, given what we looked at the story of Gideon, uh, Gideon planted a lot of those seeds, especially the way he, he ended his life. But we see the people, they turned again, uh, turned away from the true God. We see that they hoard after Baals. Uh, they did not remember the Lord their God, uh, who had delivered them from all their enemies, right? The Midianites. Um, and they did not show any kind of loyalty to, um, to Gideon in return for what he had done. And I thought about this when I was looking at this, that I think it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable that um, a people could so quickly forget God's graces, so quickly forget what God had done for them, until I look at my own heart. And I think of how many times do I forget, like God will do an amazing thing in my life, I'll be, thank you, Lord. And within days, I've forgotten or I'm living my life as if it never happened. And so once again, I look, at the, I look at God's word as a mirror. And I see my own self in the mirror. I'm like, yikes. But for the grace of God, there go I, right? But this is the state of Israel. They go after the, the idols of their day. And by the time we get to chapter 9, by the time we get to chapter 9, we're going to encounter something that we've never encountered before. In the, in the book of Judges. Um, when we get to chapter 9, we are going to encounter, to quote the great Monty Python, now for something completely different. Uh, it is different. And so what is different? Well, a few things that are different about the story. In fact, let, let's read a little bit of it. I know that all of you have read your uh, portion already, but, uh, right, Lavinia? You're, uh, yeah. Um, chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all the 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Okay. So, we come across this story, a story of, a, of, of this guy named Abimelech. Now, one of the things we should notice is what's not listed. There's usually, a refer, there's usually something that goes with whenever a judge comes on the scene. And what usually comes out is these words, and then God raised up a deliverer, right? We don't get that here. We don't see any anywhere where it says, then God raised, then the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. Second thing is that the key figure in the story is not a person raised by God as a savior, a rescuer, but all we know is that he's a son of Gideon. 
one of the many sons. The third thing is this, is that the, the place and the people that are the focus of this story is not really Israel. The focus is actually on a town called Shechem. And, and Shechem uh, and the Shechemites, they're actually, they, 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 there's a lot of history of them in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And they typically have a pretty good relationship with Israel, right? And they go way back to the time of Jacob. Actually, even back to Abraham, I think. And the fourth thing is this, is that the focus of this story is not about judging. It's not about being delivered. But it's about ruling. The only thing that it says about Abimelech is that he ruled. Not he rescued, not he delivered, he ruled. Now that's interesting. Um, it's, you have to get this because in, in the Bible, um, whenever you find the ambition to become a king, that's never a good thing. Whenever you find someone who wants to be on top and rule over others, it's never a good thing. And that's what we find with Abimelech. He wants to be king. He wants to, he wants to lead. And here's the last thing, and I think this is probably the most important thing, is that in this entire story, from chapter 8, verse 34, to chapter 10, verse 6, the name of the Lord is not mentioned. Yahweh is not mentioned. That should get our attention. And so the questions, the questions we're going to be looking at tonight are, are important questions. What is the relationship between Abimelech and the story of Israel? Uh, what is God doing in this story? What are his people doing? And how, how does this connect with Donald Trump? No, I, with, with, the, uh, <laughs> with, with our lives. <laughs> now, the key to understanding, the key to understanding what is going on in this passage is found in a couple key words that show up time and again. And you have to watch for this. There are sometimes um, key words that will show up. And when these words show up, and if they show up more than once, you, you have to think, okay, maybe there's something going on here. Maybe I need to pay attention to this. Well, there are a couple key words that show up. Now, again, this is not me being an expert saying, hey, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I had help along the way. A guy named Michael Wilcock uh, helped me in, in, in putting this together. And he points out that there are uh, some key words that show up. And here are the two words. The two Hebrew words are emet and tamim. And depending on your translation, they, they're translated differently. Um, some, in, in the ESV, I think it's good faith and integrity. But the best way probably to, to uh, translate them is truth and integrity. Truth and integrity. Think about that. Truth and integrity. And here's the thing. Whenever you find a decline in truth and integrity, society will suffer. In the story of Judges, this decline in truth and integrity is the key to understanding the story of Abimelech. So we had hints in our story of Gideon, 
um, way back uh, in, in our last week, we, we, we saw already God beginning to question the truthfulness or the sincerity of Israel's cry for help. In fact, last time when Israel cried out for help against the oppression of the Midianites, what does God do? He sends a prophet, right? This is unusual. He sends a prophet and the prophet says, huh, I know why you're crying. Thus says the Lord, I know why you're crying out is because you're uncomfortable. You're, you're complaining. But it's not because of all that I've done for you. You're just really uncomfortable. That's why you're crying out. You have not, as the prophet says, you had not given heed to my voice. And then we have Gideon. Um, you know, he's, he starts well, ends poorly. Um, and then at the very end, we see Israel going back to their old ways, whoring after Baal and uh, making um, something holy like the ephod into kind of a s- idol or superstition. And, and by the time we get to, to chapter 9, um, the theme of truth and integrity becomes huge. So truth and integrity are, 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 are really important in the story, not because we find a lot of it. <laughs> There's not a lot of truth and integrity in this story. But the fact that it's important and it's absent should, should get our attention. And I think this needs to be our warning, especially tonight of all nights. Um, we're living in a world of hype, division, spin, and lies. And what's sorely lacking in our world today, and in the church as well, is truth and integrity. And so what I like to do, because last week, I know I didn't break you into groups, and I could just see in the look in your eyes, it's like, (laughs) David, what about our Zoom breakout group? Well, 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 don't worry. This week, we have it. We have it it coming to you. I'm going to have you guys break into groups. I mean, you can just in your bubbles or whatever it happens to be. You guys online, you have no excuse because you're like cyberly joined together. Um, I want to ask you this question. It is a question. When you hear the words truth and integrity, what are some things that come to mind? What are some people that come to mind? Okay. Um, What does it look like? Truth and integrity. What are some things that, what does this mean? And what are some people that come to mind? I'll just give you a few minutes to do this. All right. The joy of a breakout room. Here we go. Here we go. This is going to be fun. It really will be. Uh, Let's see. I'll put you into, there we go. Have fun. Remember, there's nothing more awkward than a Zoom breakout group. So just deal with it. It'll be fun. Okay. And I will mute myself. I think everyone's, uh, everyone's back. So what are some things that come to mind when you think of truth and integrity? I'll have the embodied people here. So what do you guys think? Someone who's honest. Okay. Their actions match their words. And that's, that's the meaning of integrity. Because you think of integral. You think of one. There's a oneness to their, you know, the, what they say is what they do. And, and everything is unified and not broken into pieces. Yeah, that's very good. 
not necessarily worried about consequences. So living with a sense of a holy indifference, right? Not just indifference, I don't care, but you know what? I'm gonna live before God and with, with integrity, yeah? No exaggeration, no hyperbole, yeah, no, yeah, good. Trustworthy? Yeah. Good. How about you cyber people? What do you think? You have to unmute yourself if you're saying something. Else. It was sad. We were very hard-pressed to think of people who have truth and integrity. Uh, so you're hard-pressed to think of somebody who has truth and integrity. Yeah, we we're talking, the only one that kept coming to mind was Jesus. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mother Teresa was mentioned, and I mentioned uh, Ben Carson, who I felt because he tells the truth, no one will ever vote for him, which is kind of yeah, sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ones that are decent don't stand a chance. Yeah, yeah that's true. I was sharing that when I, I used to live in, um, in the Midwest, in the States, and there's a kind of Midwestern... Um, Character, some Christians that guys that I knew and there's just a real sense of truth and integrity in the way they live their life They're kind of salt of the earth uh, guys that I knew and uh, yeah, they had a real real impression upon me Well, these words truth and integrity are gonna show up again and again um, And they surround our story of Abimelech. So turn to your uh, Bibles again back to Abimelech um, So Abimelech goes to uh, Shechem and he says, which is better for you to have 70 of the sons of, Be of Gideon rule over you or have one guy rule over you who is, by the way, from your hometown, me, Abimelech. And then verse three, and his mother rel mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf. Interesting, because his mom and her relatives on behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, ha, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver, the money, blood money, uh, from the house of Baal, Bereth, with which, the, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And then they went to his father's house at uh, Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, Gideon. 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Okay. So, lots of questions. Um, not a lot of truth and integrity. We get this guy, we're introduced to Abimelech. We know he's the son of Gideon, but he's, 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 there's something a bit different. Uh, most of Gideon's sons, it seems, were sons of Israelite women, but not so with Abimelech. It looks like he was the son of a concubine that Gideon had and was from the city of Shechem. His name is interesting. It means my father is king. And we read that uh, Abimelech, he goes to Shechem, where his mom and where his relatives live. And, and um, again, Shechem is a town that, that was friendly to Israel in the past. Uh, Shechem is actually the location of some pretty significant events in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, and in the book of Joshua. Um, in Joshua chapter 8 and Joshua chapter 24, um, 
Shechem features largely in this. And even the oak at Shechem um, was an honored place in Israel's history. Uh, Abraham had pitched his first camp in, in Canaan and Yahweh appeared to him and gave him uh, the promise of the promised land. Jacob renews his dedication to Yahweh at the oak at Shechem. And so Shechem ain't so bad of a place. It's a good place historically. So it was a place of truth and integrity. And it had a good connection to Israel. That is until Abimelech shows up on the scene. Because Abimelech, in one fell swoop, he breaks, he breaks everything that had been established. All the truth, all the integrity that went with Shechem, Abimelech twists. What does he do? Well, he downplays the connection between Shechem and Israel. And instead, he highlights the differences. And he says, all right, guys, who would you rather have rule you? All the 70 sons of Gideon, they're not even from Shechem. They're from a different place. I'm local, born and bred in Shechem, and I am a son of Gideon. So who would you rather have rule over you? These 70 clowns that we don't even know, you know who they are, or me, a good Shechemite. I mean, you know me, you know my mom, my relatives. And so, but, so in order to, to win them over, you have to actually draw, put a wedge in between them. So, so you think about the word integrity, uh, integrity, integral, is, 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 is coming together into one. What we find Abimelech doing is breaking apart. It's not an integration, it's a breaking apart. Well, Abimelech's successful. Um, a lot of the relatives thought, you know what? It would be a good thing. Oh, we don't want your brothers ruling over us. Good, we're with you on that one. We should make you king because you are a local boy. Thirdly, you know what? We'll give you some money. Here's some seed money <laughs> to become king. How much is it going to? Here's 70, seven, I don't know, 70 coins, silver coins. So and we'll take it from, the, from the, the temple and we'll give it to you and do whatever you want with that money in order to become king. Well, so what does he do? He, well, he, he hires some thugs. He hires some thugs. And uh, what do they do? They go, they go to Gideon's hometown. And when they get there, they find all the sons. And they kill them all. And they slaughter them. We read, they slaughter them on one stone. There's a stone. They just take them to the stone. And one by one by one, they kill them all except for one. One gets away. The young one that we actually were introduced to last week, he's the one who's too nervous to, to, to kill um, the, uh, the two kings. And Jotham. Jotham gets away. And so the people of Shechem, they've made a deal with Abimelech. Abimelech becomes king. Coronation takes place at the oak, at the oak of Shechem, this holy place. And so there's disintegration happening here. Because again, in Joshua 24, the oak of Shechem, to actually take a look at this, take a look at Joshua, just go back a book and look at Joshua chapter 24. Look what it says. This is really interesting. Yeah, actually, it says Joshua chapter 24. Look at verse one. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. All right? 
So, and, and they presented themselves before God. Now jump down to verse four, uh, 14, I believe it is. Verse 14, yeah. This is what Joshua says. And then he says these words. Now, therefore, fear the Lord okay, and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Uh, yeah, and serve the Lord. Okay, interesting. Look what he says. He says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Those two words, the two Hebrew words, are the words that we're talking about. This uh, emet and hamin, right? Which means truth and, and timing, truth and integrity. And the only time, the only time, from my understanding, the only time um, outside Judges 9, where you find that combination of those two words, is in Joshua 24. Truth and integrity joined together. And so Abimelech is going to show us what happens when truth and integrity go out the window. And so what happens? Abimelech is king. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy, right? Until one day, look what happens in chapter 9, verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, and he so Jotham is still around, and Jotham goes, and he goes to the edge of town, and he stands on this hill, and he tells the people of Shechem a story. Tells them a story, a parable. So what is the story he tells them? It's an interesting story. He says this, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. That God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to an olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by the gods and men are honored and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit to go and sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if, get this, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, here's our words again. If you acted in good faith and truth and integrity, when you made Abimelech king, if you dealt well with, with uh, Gideon and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his son, 70 men on one stone, made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith, here we are again, in truth and integrity with Gideon and his house, well, then rejoice in Abimelech. But if not, let fire come out and both of you guys can be consumed. So he basically utters a curse. He says, look, you guys are playing with fire. He's saying this to the people of Shechem. If in good faith, if in good faith, it's in truth and integrity, you approached Abimelech, even though he killed all my brothers, 
and made him king. And if he, in truth and integrity, is willing to lead, well, then good on you. But if there has been in any way a lack of truth and integrity, then woe be unto both of you, Shechem and Abimelech. That's the curse that he kind of lays on. And then he takes off. And it's interesting, uh, Jotham, from this point on, um, he, he leaves uh, the stories of scripture. We, we don't know where he took off to. <laughs> he, he just disappears. So Jotham, who was a little bit nervous initially, he does utter this curse. Um, still probably a little nervous because he is standing on a mountain far away. <laughs> so he's so still a little bit nervous, which, which makes sense. Okay, so that's what he says. Truth and integrity. If you acted in truth and integrity, good. If not, you, you got to be careful because you just made a deal with the devil. You made a deal to ask the bramble bush to reign over you. And if, if it's not in truth and integrity, this bramble bush will be set on fire and will consume you. Okay? So let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Well, let's see how this new arrangement is going to work out. Well, for three years, everything looks pretty good. Look in verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Gideon might come. And the blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them. And on the men of Shechem who strengthened uh, strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in. Look at this. This is verse 25. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. Okay, this is interesting. So we read that Abimelech rules for a while. Everything's okay. He rules. He's not raised to rescue. He's not raised as a judge to deliver. He is a he is a king that rules and dominates. Okay? And then we read, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And this is one of those many awkward passages in the Old Testament. Because the moment you read that, you're like, what? What did God do? He, he sent an evil spirit? Um, what is God's relationship to evil? Um, is God the source of this evil spirit? Uh, because God sent the evil spirit, does that uh, absolve Shechem and Abimelech from any responsibility for their action? Because God... Well, there's a lot that we could talk about. But let me just say a couple things. One is that God did not make the spirit evil. But he uses, he uses this evil spirit to serve his sovereign purposes. And it's the language of the Old Testament. It's the language of the Old Testament. And you'll come across this over and over again in the Old Testament where you see God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then you read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And, uh, and then, um, and so you get, you get a bit of both, right? And so there's this mysterious interplay of God's sovereignty and our decisions. Okay. What does it say? Unclean? Yeah, okay, well, yeah, I think it, it, 
I believe it says evil. Well, okay, it's the spirit that stirs up trouble. I should have just gone with your translation. Then I have. To, then I have. I don't have to answer these awkward questions. <laughs> Anyhow, lots of discussion points. What I want to do, though, is I want to focus into how this plays out. And then, as we're as we're talking about this, some things hopefully will become a little more clear. For starters, okay, how's this going to play out? So God sends this spirit of dissension or division between Shechem and Abimelech. How does this play out? Well, we see that a, year, a few years have gone by and Shechem doesn't seem as enthralled with Abimelech anymore. How do we know this? Well, Shechem has hired a bunch of thugs to guard this mountain pass, hoping Abimelech's going to go by so that they can kill him. So that's kind of strange. Why are they trying to ambush Abimelech? And then something else happens. We realize, we read, if you, if you guys read the story, we don't have time to go through it all, but I'll tell you what happens. A fellow shows up into town. And this guy's name is Gale. G-A-A-L, Gale. And he shows up with a bunch of his cronies and they move into town. And uh, he says to the town people, he says, hey, hey, hey. You think Abimelech is a Shechemite? My name is Gail. I'm actually more of a Shechemite than Abimelech will ever be. And he said it just kind of with that accent, I think. <laughs> He's a thug, right? And uh, he, he recognizes that the people have kind of grown tired of Abimelech. And so Gail says, hey. Don't follow Abimelech anymore. You follow me. I'm a local boy, right? Okay. So you can see some problems starting to happen here. And then we read Abimelech. He hears about this. He hears about this Gale coming into town saying, hey, follow me. Don't follow Abimelech. I'll be your, I'll be your king. Because there's a governor of the town. And the governor's name is Zebul. And Zebel doesn't like Gale very much. It's, it's interesting because if you read carefully, you get kind of hints of as to why, like, why doesn't he like Gale? Well, because Gale makes reference to him as an officer, as an officer of Abimelech. Well, Gale is actually the governor of the town. And so, no, sorry. Zebul is the governor, is actually the governor of the town. He's actually a, a bigwig in the, the town. But this Gale says, yeah, you know, he kind of treats him like, a, like an underling. And Zebul's like, all right, all right. That's the way it is, eh? And so what does he do? Well, he tells Abimelech what's going on. And he says to him, hey, say, Gale and his gang are trying to take over the town. It kind of sounds like a Wild Western film at this point. They're taking over the town. Now, Gale doesn't realize, because he's kind of clueless, he doesn't realize that Zebel is, is on Abimelech's side, sort of on his side, sort of kind of on his side. And, uh, and so Abimelech is like, I got to take out this competition. So Abimelech arranges his, him and his men to attack the city. Now, Zebel's like, we don't want him to attack the city because we might die. And so where the story goes is that Gale looks out and he says, whoa, 
I don't believe it. Abimelech and his men are coming. <laughs> and and Zebul's like, no, no, that's not, that's not, that's not an army. It's, you know, the sun's just rising. It's, your eyes are playing tricks on you. There's just shadows on the hills. Oh, for a moment, I thought there were army. It was an army. <laughs> and then he looks, he's like, it is an army. And then Zebul says to him, he goes, I love it because he says, he says, ah, where's your big mouth now, Gail? That's essentially what he says when he goes, you know, you talk a big talk. Where's your big mouth now? But then Zebel is smart because what does he say? He says, hey, Abimelech's coming to attack you. You better get your men and go out and fight him. What would have been a better strategy? Well, the better strategy if you're Gail is just shut the gates. Right? And shoot from above the, the walls. You get the walls. But Zebel's smart. You should go out and fight them. Yo, okay, I'll go out and fight them. So he goes out and fights them. And he gets, he gets trounced. He loses. But you notice what's happening. You're starting to see some fire, some sparks starting to happen between Shechem and Abimelech. Remember the curse. Remember the curse of Jotham. Now, here's this, this is a really dark, it's, it's starting to get dark because after Gale is defeated, the people in Shechem are like, oh, well, finally, we got rid of Gale and his, and his uh, cronies. He's gone. Abimelech, he's still our king. We're not that keen about him, but it looks like everything's settled down. Everything's okay now. But what happens the very next day? People in the city in Shechem, they go out to work the fields like they do every time. And who's waiting for them? Abimelech, and he's mad. He's mad. This is how you treat me? And what does he do? He kills all the farmers. He kills them all. In fact, it's, it's kind of a grotesque irony. He takes his men and he breaks them into three groups. What does that sound like? That's what Gideon did. Led by the Lord. And here's Abimelech, the son. He breaks his, his men into three groups, but here he massacres the farmers. But he doesn't stop there. What does he do next? He goes into the city of Shechem. He attacks the city. And they fight all day long. And he finally overcomes them. And he kills everybody in the city. And just, and he, he, and he, and then what does he do to the city? Think of the curse. What does he do? Yeah, he sets the city on fire. Remember the curse. Don't be careful with the bramble. Because you mess with the bramble, it's gonna, he's going to, bramble, he'll, he'll burn, he'll burn you out. So he kills them. He kill, and then and then we read that um, as the fire rages on, Abimelech then goes and he finds that most of a lot of the leaders of the town are hidden in this place called is is a tower of Shechem. We're not sure if it was a tower or if it, some commentators think it was kind of a um, like a like a bunker, even something like that. And it's outside the city walls. It seems. But Abimelech and his men, they go to this tower. And what do they do? They set it on fire. 
they set it on fire and it burns. And so we're hearing the curse. Everyone in the tower is killed by the conflagration. Now, we can't, we can't miss what's going on here because we have this unraveling of society. Whenever truth and integrity are abandoned, what results is chaos. Now, some of you guys have been in my classes before, and you know I've, I've talked about this before, but we live in a world today where we don't any longer believe in absolute truth. We don't believe in, in, in truth. We have personal truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. But this idea of a meta-truth of this absolute truth or this truth that's out there, most, a lot of people are, reject. Truth is just subjective. And we live in a society that says, I ought to be free to do whatever I want without any hindrances uh, and live my own truth or whatever that happens to be. But what happens though? What happens though is when we, you live in a culture or in a society where there is no sense of truth, um, if we're, so Ray, let's say you and I disagree. Now, if we believe in truth, if we believe that, okay, the truth is out there, you just got it wrong and you think I got it wrong, but we, we both think that there is some truth that we're both after. How we talk to one another is going to look differently because we have this idea that somehow as two human beings, we should respect one another because that's, that's true. That's, that's a right way to, to, uh, to deal with one another. We also believe that we're both pursuing something that's true. And so how we go about this is going to be very different than if there is no such thing as truth. Because there, if there is no such thing as truth, if there is no um, meta-truth or macro-truth, if there is no overall picture of what is true, okay, and I have my opinion and you have your opinion, that's all we got because there's no truth. I have my truth, you have your truth. How do we interact now? Very difficult. What is the language of our, like before, the language of our communication is we're both trying to pursue truth, but we disagree with one another. But we both agree that it's true that we should be, we should respect one another as human beings, because that's what we agree as a society is a true way of dealing with one another. Okay. You get rid of all that truth. How do we deal with one another? If there is no such thing as truth, how do we communicate with one another? Okay, why do we fight and why do we kill? Yeah. Because the language, the what is it? Yeah, the language is, is no longer us pursuing truth. It is, it is all about power now. And so what I do is I exert my words to overpower you. And you use your words to overpower me. And I'll use as much coercion as I can. Hey, if I don't agree with Michael, if he's saying something dumb, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go on Twitter. I'll, 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 I'll get enough people. I'll get enough people that will shut him down. I'll cancel you. Right. And Mike, Mike will do everything he can to shut me down ahead of time. 
And so all you have is you have multiple factions using the language of power to shut each other down. Does that have any resonance with you today? And the reason why people are saying, you know, why can't we just talk about You, you can't. Because if there is no meta truth, all you have is power. And so all I'm going to use my language to do is to shut you down and you're going to do the same. It's just power. We just have power relationships. We no longer have relationships. And when truth and integrity disappear, what results is chaos, destruction, and fire. I think that's what we see in our culture happening today. But you get a picture of it right here. When people act without truth and without integrity, it leads to violence. So this is, I wish this was the end of the matter. Um, but Abimelech, uh, Abimelech, well, and uh, excuse the dark pun, Abimelech is just getting warmed up. Uh, he, he knows of no other way to live. I love what Barry Webb says. He says, uncontrolled rage is dangerous. It makes people lose perspective, trust no one, see enemies everywhere, kill innocent people, and in the end, overreach themselves and bring down their own destruction. And if I just see a lot of anger in our culture today. So Abimelech is on a roll. So what happens? We don't, we, we're not sure why, but he turns his attention to another town. He's destroyed Shechem. He's destroyed all the farmers of Shechem. He's destroyed all the leaders of Shechem. He is consumed with anger. And now his anger, now the fire gets directed towards a, a, a local town. And the town is called Thebes. And maybe he thought that this town had joined Shechem in the revolt against his rule. But all we know is that he's planning to take his army in that direction. And he's going to do to the town of Thebes what he had done to Shechem, what he had done to the Tower of Shechem. So milita Abimelech's military strategy has one note. <laughs> Burn. And that's what he does now. He burns. And so he comes. He comes to the town of, of, of Thebes. And he comes to the outer gates. And, um, oh, and, 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 he, and he wants to set the town on fire. Because that's what he does. He wants to set the town on fire. And so he, get, he has to get close enough. So he fights. He gets close enough to the tower so he can start another fire and kill everyone. Except something happens. What happens? What's that? A lady drops a stone on his head, which, which, well, not just a stone. What did she drop? A millstone. Does anybody know? Is there any farmers here? They're huge. I want to know how she, she, she must have had some guys say, hey, you want to take up that stone? And they'd be like, why? They're like, oh, never mind, just take it up. <laughs> and so, anyhow, she gets this stone and she's like looking and she sees. And, and it lands on him. And he's almost dead, Abimelech. He's lying on the ground. He's like, I can't be killed by a woman. You kill me. And so he has one of his, his own guys uh, kill him. Interesting. Interesting. Now, there's another irony here. A very interesting irony. How does Abimelech die? He dies by what? 
Well, I, but who does the big damage from the, who drops, drops, drops one stone. Oh, because the other brothers killed on this stone? All the brothers were killed on one stone. And Abimelech was killed by one stone. I mean, these are the cool things about the Old Testament. These, these, um, these, yeah, these parallels. Very good. Yeah. So that spells Abimelech's doom. Now, interesting in all this, in all this, God hasn't been mentioned, but you get the sense that God is at work. And I wanted to look at a couple ways where God is at work in this story. Actually, let me stop here. Um, any questions? Yes, Lisa. Well, he is the ruler of Israel, but it seems that his scope of authority didn't seem to extend that far. Yeah, I think I think he's like a local warlord because remember we were talking about the the judges in, in thinking in those terms. His his authority in in theory was over all Israel, but his scope of authority I don't think reached that far because he ends up fighting with Shechem, but we don't know in those three years what what, what it looked like. Which is it? We're going to come back to that because that's a really important point. Shechem was, I don't know how big it was though. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure um, how. Well, Shechem plays very important in, in terms of the, it's the place where the covenant was, uh, was, re, um, was renewed in uh, Joshua 24. It just has a long history in the, in the story of Israel. Um, and, and it had a good relationship with Israel. So it, 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 it's a significant city in Israel. Um, but it, uh, it, it's, 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 um, it's history. I think predates it too. Were there Jews and other people in Shechem? Uh, I'm not sure. I would think so, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring a map next. Time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, the story revolves around, the, I'm just repeating for you guys, the story revolves around 70 uh, brothers being killed, but here you have Shechem, we have no idea how many people died, but it would be a significant number. We're not sure how big the cities were at this time, but everybody in the city was killed. David, you have a question from Anne McDonald. She says, does anyone know who the woman was that dropped the stone? It, it was jail. <laughs> <laughs> she was really good at it <laughs> i know we don't know no that nameless woman i mean that, there's a lot of nameless significant women in the bible right uh they show up again and again yeah it's interesting i'm just joking i thought it might be a bimlech's mother-in-law and she was just mad at him <laughs> good <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna get that son-in-law <laughs> yeah. or it could have been uh could have been jotham dressing up <laughs> Because, you know, he's, he's, 
He's still a little bit nervous, right? <laughs> we don't know. Lots of questions, lots of detail. Uh, I have a question. Yeah, what's well, interesting, so Denise is bringing up the question about uh, that, that symbol or ideas of, of blessing and curse, right? Well, it's interesting because where Jotham stands, he stands on one mountain and next to the other mountain, those are the two mountains where back in, I believe is in, um, yeah, in Joshua 8, that's right, yeah, were the mountains of the blessing and the curse. And, but he actually stands on the mountain of blessing, I believe, and utters a curse. But here's the thing. It didn't have to be a curse. It didn't have to, because if, if Shechem and Abimelech said, look, if they repented and they said, we want you to be a leader and we are going to do this with truth and integrity and live with truth and integrity from now on as you lead, then maybe there would be a blessing. But, I mean, the implication is that it was going, it was not going to turn out well. But it's a great observation, Denise, because that's, it was those mountains of the blessing and the curse that we read about in Joshua chapter eight, um, that uh, Jotham is standing on one of those mountains. Yeah, very good. Now, you guys are awesome. Great questions, great comments. I'm so sorry, I'm a bit going far, but there was a question for me. Always the number of the, Gideon's sons are 70. Even we know at least two of them didn't dead. Should be 68. But always the book says 70 of the brothers killed by one stone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah that's, or, that's, or killed on one stone, not by yeah, one stone. Yeah, but why 70? Because 70 didn't kill. One Abimelech was alive and the other one, Utah, was alive. Why they yeah. always say 70? That was, maybe you know something about that 70. Well, my guess, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a guess, and I, my, my dear friend Ivan would probably uh, be able to answer this uh, better than me, but I would guess that, I mean, the way the numbers work in the Old Testament are usually symbolic. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not the actual numbers, but the, the numbers uh, in the Bible have, have deep meaning, and seven is a number of completion, and so it could be 70 is a picture of, that the 70 represents all the sons, even though we know that there are 68, Abimelech and the uh, Jotham, Jotham escaped, so 68. But the, the language is just like 40 years. Like, could, was it 39 months and, you know, or 39 years and three months? But it, it, use the, okay. the number 40 Around, okay. to, to represent a generation. Yeah, we around, talked about yeah, that yeah. Uh, last okay. week. And I would guess because 70 re represents the entirety of his children. I think that's what mm -hmm. it represents. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great question. What? Yeah, but it says that, but it doesn't use the covenant name of the Lord, which is interesting. The Lord is not mentioned. In the th and, and so there is reference to, to God, a generic term for God. But the, um, 
it's always important to notice that when you when you come across the, um, the Yahweh and when you come across the word um, that that is used for for God, one has a covenant meaning and one has a deeply relational meaning, and one has more of a a general sense of who God is. And so, yeah, it is mentioned, but is it's is but but not the covenant name until later. Uh, David, am I right? Is that first time somebody in the Israelites try to be king by himself? Because normally they cry out to the Lord and Lord bring a judge yeah. to them. But that's, that's the first a, time the person, that's a civil war. That's nothing to do with God in that story somehow. But God put his uh, work on that way he wants because we know he's a sovereign on all, everything. But that's a civil war that doesn't do anything with God. They won't just be king. That's it. Yeah. Like the other nations. Yeah. I, I think you're right, Nara. I think that's the, I think, yeah, I think it's the first time you have someone who through strategy puts himself forward as king. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's the first time. And, uh, and so his desire is not to rescue his desire. He's not being raised up. His desire is to rule to exercise power over. And that's never a good thing in the Bible. Anybody, anytime you see somebody who exalts themselves over another, it's not always, it's not a good thing. Yeah. So we do see God at work in all this. Where, even though his, 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 the covenant name is not found till later on, where do we see him at work? Well, God has been working towards the punishment of Shechem for their sins. I mean, you see, the whole story is this being played out. Abimelech is out of control. He's growing more and more rude and wild until a woman who somehow carried up or found a millstone drops it on Abimelech's head. And so we find the punishment. It's interesting. You find the punishment of the Shechemites who had first conceived to put Abimelech as their king or who, who agreed and, and, and paid for it and paid for the murder of Gideon's sons so that their hometown boy could become king. We find them all being killed by the one who is, they set up as a ruler in the first place. So there is a punishment being carried out. Secondly, is um, you see God in this story allowing evil to run its course. Um, this is really interesting. And this is something a friend of mine talked about quite a bit, is that the very nature of evil is that evil will swallow itself. Evil will go after evil. Evil doesn't say, hey, let's go after the good and take down the good. Evil will, will, will devour itself. If evil is left unhindered, it will kill itself. <laughs> you know, I see this. You know, one of the characteristics of our culture today is, um, again, we come back to this idea of, of uh, there not being objective truths and, and, um, and uh, morals are relative and morals are subjective and ethics are subjective. And, and there's been people who've been teaching this for a long time. 
but now you have this move, you have this movement in the West and you've seen this with, with the cancel culture and everything that's going on. And a lot of people really angry going after anybody. You make one slip. If you say one wrong thing, you are done, right? How many, how many uh, famous people do we see their careers being taken down because they've said something that maybe they shouldn't have said or they misspoke or whatever. But what you're seeing happening is, you've, is, is within universities is you have prominent professors who've been teaching this stuff. All morals are relative. All truth is relative. There is no truth. You have all these professors who've been teaching this who are now being attacked by this radical element within our society. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of these professors in universities are like, oh, no, hang on, I'm, I'm on your side. And they're like, you're not on our side. And evil goes after itself. And I remember um, reading about this during the um, right? the uh, Cultural Revolution. In the Cultural Revolution, who were the objects who were ridiculed by the, um, what was it, the Hongwei uh, Bing, right? Is, the, uh, is the, uh, the, the Red Guard. The Red Guard, who did they go after? Do you remember? They went after, they went after actually the revolutionaries. The people who were with Mao Zedong, who were part of the leaders of the, of the whole communist movement in 1949, the ones who were the leaders who were, you know, spearheading this great revolution between 1966 and 1976, the Red Guards go after them and, and they were killed. And um, I remember somebody pointing this out is that the very nature of corruption is corruption just keeps being corrupted and evil will swallow itself. And so what you have here in this, in this story is you have that once you see the first tear in the fabric of Shechem, the, the whole alliance begins to unravel. No intervention is needed. Such is the nature of evil. It destroys itself. Look what Michael Wilcox says. I think I have this in your notes. God's almighty power is seen most chiefly in his showing mercy and pity. He has little need to use it in judgment. He has but to take his restraining, his restraining hand off the brake, and wicked men will run their own destruction, run to their own destruction. And all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And in the end, in this story, each side double crosses each other. And in the end, they're destroyed. And so God allows evil to, to run its course. The other thing is you see the mutual destruction is what happens to any society that rejects truth and integrity. Abimelech and Shechem should have learned from the story of Gideon because what is where Gideon is fighting the Midianites and the Midianites get all confused and what do they do? They kill each other, right? That's why uh, Abimelech and Shechem never learned from history. Have I ever mentioned how important history is? Once or twice. In all of this, uh, God is, and this is also interesting, God has limited the scope of the evil. And Lisa, this gets back to you, your point, what you had mentioned. That most of the damage takes place in and around Shechem. Israel's largely untouched. And God's providence, his sovereignty is on, on display. A woman who just happened to have a millstone and with a deadly aim, right? I mean, yeah. And I think God uses blatant examples 
of the lack of truth and integrity to point us to the importance of truth and integrity. Like when you read a story like this and it's just all chaos and death and destruction, your heart longs for truth and integrity, right? So I look at Abimelech and I think there's a bunch of things we can learn from his life in our own life. And, and, and this is important for us because a lot of the Bible is about God showing mercy to sinners. I don't know if you realize that. It's, it's, it's a predominant theme. One of the themes in the Bible is that God is just, he's merciful, and he's gracious. What is justice? Josh, you hit me, I hit you back. That's justice. Eye for an eye. You hit me, I'm not going to kill you. But it's an eye for an eye. It's, it's, I will not respond in a way that goes beyond what you did to me. That's what, when the Bible talks about an eye for an eye, it means justice. You get what you deserve. Mercy is what? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So justice, you get what you deserve. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve. Grace is you get what you don't deserve. And you see all three in, in, in how God deals with us. And in this case, what we do see is judgment falling on sin. We do see judgment falling on sin. And secondly, it reminds us that God is un, he's, he's not under any obligation to show mercy to sinners or grace in the face of evil. People say, well, God is loving. He's kind. Well, it's true. It is true. But he's also just. He's perfectly just. And deep down, we want him to be just, <laughs> just not towards us. But deep down, we want him because what do you do with a Hitler? What do you do with a, a, a pedophile who gets away with it? You want justice. You want there to be ultimate justice. Judgment is never God's preferred option. We read in Ezekiel 33, 11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rescue is more of God's preferred option. So God, and you can't say God is judgment in the same way you could say God is love. Okay? And even when he does judge, it is tempered with grace and a desire to rescue and restore but tonight's story is a reminder that it is a dangerous thing to fall in the hands of, of uh, what does Hebrews 10.31 say? Anybody got it memorized? Anyone? Somebody's Googling it right now. 1031. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah. It is a fearful thing. And we know this because we know the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the stories of Ananias and Sapphira. We know the stories in, in, in Hebrews. We know the story of Revelation. Uh, it's not fun to talk about. But whenever we do see this kind of judgment happening, in the case of Abimelech and, and Shechem as well, our heart response should be, who am I, God, that you would be mindful of me? Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the other thing is that God is sovereign over evil. 
whenever we see evil in the world, regardless of what's happening tonight, <laughs> um, God is sovereign, right? Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Amen? All right. God can use evil to discipline evildoers. We talked about that. The David, other do you have thing another is, question? Yeah. Do you have another question? I think it was Naira. She's good. Oh, she's yeah. muted. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. No, that's Sorry. Good. That's all right. The other thing is you get a picture tonight in the story of Abimelech. You get just a picture, just a hint of hell. Hell is for real. It's beyond. That's, that's not a story. That's not a movie title that you have. Heaven is for real. Hell is for real. I don't think it would be quite as popular. Um, it's beyond the horizon of the Old Testament. But man, there's certainly foretastes of it in the Old Testament. It just says there's foretastes of it in, uh, in our world today. When you think of Auschwitz and you think of Hiroshima, uh, Rwanda. And the evil of Abimelech is like a fire of hell. And the last thing I think that comes out of Abimelech is that unpleasant reading exists for our own good. <laughs> it's not easy reading the story of Abimelech, but it is for our own good and it would be wise for us to listen. Now, we should stop here, but what I'd like to do is just very quickly, there's an epilogue. And it's a weird little epilogue, and you're like, what in the world does this? Turn to your Bibles. Turn to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, the first five verses. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Ishkar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him rose Jair, the uh, Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried at Kaman. Okay. So what do we do? We just came across two more judges in a few verses. What in the world do we do with this? How does this factor in? Well, I think it does factor in. And just as a, as a conclusion, I want to rehabilitate Tola, son of Dodo, um, and Jair. Um, because they're interesting. Because at first glance, what do you think? You, you know, who are these guys? I think just, we'd read just a little bit. But, but there's a couple clues about this. A couple things about this that we need to pay attention to. Uh, it's a very nondescript de description of, of these guys. It's kind of along the lines of Othniel. In fact, Othniel seems like a very colorful personality compared to what we, we just came here, what we came across here. But what do we know? Well, we learn a few things about God. For starters, we read that Tola was commissioned to do what? To, yeah, to deliver Israel. That's good. That's easy. He is not commissioned to rule. He doesn't want to, he's commissioned to deliver. So he's in line with Othniel, uh, Shamgar, and even Gideon. Same expression. He's in line with the savior figures we've encountered so far. We also read, interesting words, 
he arose to rescue Israel. Who else arose to rescue Israel? No, in the, in the story of Judges. That term arose, do you know, Sharon? <laughs> Deborah. Deborah is the same language as used. We read that Tola lived at Shamir, which seems innocent enough, except the word is used, he lived, the word is lived, is, uh, the actual word means to sit or to preside. And it's the same Hebrew word that is used, that's used to describe who? Deborah. Deborah again. She used to sit, like same word, under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, and Israel came to her for judgment. And then it says, Tola judged Israel. It's the same phrase used in Othniel's case and one other case, and that's Deborah. And so we have Tola arising, presiding, and judging for 23 years. Maybe he was a leader like Deborah. It seems to maybe indicate that. So he's a good leader. How about Jair? Well, he's got 30 sons and lots of donkeys and 30 cities. Um, judged for 22 years. Now, to ride a donkey rather than a war horse is one who comes with authority, but also in peace. Um, all to say, on the heels of such a horrific evil story of Abimelech and Shechem, what do we see happening here? We see God showing grace. And peace again. Yeah, how many years? 45 years. 45 years. I mean, but interesting, I think it doesn't it's, it's, say, it's, sorry, Dave, but interesting, doesn't say the land goes to peace because always this after judges comes out, they got it and the land had the peace for 40 years, for 80 years. But for these yeah, two, okay, yeah, doesn't it doesn't say, say peace. Yeah, but it does say he judged and, and God raised him up. And so the language suggests that, but yeah, that's a good, good observation. But I do think in the, in, in the end, with these two people, we have a picture of, of grace in the midst of a pretty dark time. I mean, again, we come back, God is just, God is merciful, God is gracious. Um, yeah, it's... And so we, we get this picture of grace, even, even God's grace overriding his own truth and integrity. Because by truth and integrity, if, you, if God is going to give Israel what they deserve, if he's going to be just towards Israel, it's not, there shouldn't be an Israel, but there is. And all this passage does is it makes us long for the culmination of the biblical story, because we read about the one who is the truth, who lived a perfect life, truth and integrity, and that's Jesus Christ, the true Israel, the son of God. And by the time you get to the New Testament, we learn that God's truth and integrity are not overridden by his mercy, but on the cross, you get truth, integrity, you get justice, mercy, and grace all together. As Jesus, when he dies on the cross, Jesus is both completely just and he's the gracious justifier of sinners like you and me. And so this perfect picture of truth and integrity, of justice, mercy, and grace is found in Jesus Christ. And so I still think, that's why when we go through the book of Judges, I mean, this Abimelech, he's a tough, he's a tough nut. And, she and, and Shechem, it's, it's, a, it's a tough story. But even at the end of this, we get this, these two quick stories of 
two judges that God raised and who led Israel for 45 years. Uh, one who is like a Deborah, one, you know, who, who reigned in peace. I think that's, that's, again, a picture of God's grace in the midst of really dark times. That's why Bruce Walkey, when he teaches uh, the book of Judges, you know what he calls it? He calls it light in dark times. Because there is, there is light. God's light continues to shine even in these dark days, which is encouraging for us tonight. Don't tell me the score. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're uh, close to the, uh, our time. Way to go, guys. He came out tonight. Great turnout, even though there's this great distraction. And uh, some of you online may have had it on, but I notice you're watching this way. Except for you guys who don't have your camera on. I know who they are. No. Uh, but why don't we uh, close in prayer? And uh, next week, next week, we, oh, yeah, next week, next week. Be a lot of fun. <laughs> you got to read ahead. Uh, read about uh, Jephthah. That'll be our, our story next week. And we're almost done. We got uh, three weeks. We got next week, then we got Samson, then we got the conclusion. Yeah, we're getting there. All right, let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that you are just. And we're glad you are just. But we're also very thankful that you are merciful. That you don't give to us what we deserve. And we're thankful that you are gracious. You give to us what we don't deserve. And all this is done through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, who is both just and justifier of sinners like ourselves. And so we thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross... On the cross, perfect justice, perfect mercy, and perfect grace is shown. And so we thank you that we are recipients of your grace. May this encounter that we see tonight of the lack of truth and integrity draw our hearts to live before you in truth, walking with the one who says he is the truth, the life, and the way. And with integrity, we pray that our lives would not be fragmented into so many different pieces, but would be together in one before you. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.